Well, we've been singing about some strange stuff, if you really think about it. And Wade alluded to this. I thought he was going to preach my sermon at first when he started the service. But we've been singing about suffering and pain and wounds. These are all out of the lyrics we just, from the songs we just sang, blood, cross, death. Isn't that, be honest, that, that's a little weird. If you just think of it at face value, we Christians and the cross, what is our obsession with the cross? We sing about it. We talk about it. We preach about it. Uh, we wear it as jewelry around our necks. We, our church logo is a cross. We have a cross up on our steeple, this building, the cross. We, what is what is the big deal with the cross? Why does it matter so much to us? Why in the world would we call the day that our Lord was beaten and bloodied and executed good, good Friday? I, I know that many of you know the answer to that, and that's why you've come out on this Friday evening and to sing and to celebrate. And if you don't know the answer, if you came in here not knowing the answer, we're I thank God you're here, and I pray that, and I hope that you leave here not just knowing the that knowing the answer to that question, but but seeing and really believing and embracing um, this Jesus who was crucified, and you would see that this day indeed is exceedingly good uh, because of what it represents. We're in Mark chapter 15, and if I get you if you've got a Bible or if you can find one you've got maybe on your phone your tablet your and there's some on the end of each each row of chairs and you can just reach down and grab one or have someone pass you we're in Mark chapter 15 about two-thirds of the way through the Bible uh, Matthew Mark Luke and John these four gospel accounts all of them bear witness to the scene that we're going to be looking at tonight but I've chosen to work from the gospel of Mark both today and on Sunday on Easter Sunday so Mark chapter 15, and here's, here's the scene. It's dark, it's ugly, it's violent, and this is kind of the setup. And we won't read through the whole passion narrative here, but Jesus eats one final Passover meal with his closest followers, the twelve disciples. And he knows what's ahead of him, even that night. He knows that one of his own is going to betray him. And so he... After dinner, he goes to a garden uh, outside of the city, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes there to pray and to prepare for what is coming. And while he's praying, he has this, this heaviness, this sense, this heavy weight that falls on him as he anticipates what's coming just in the next few hours. And it just crushes him. It's, it has such an effect on him, even physically, he reacts so that his... His body begins to sweat drops of blood. That is a medical condition with, with just such agony, such grief of soul. And so he's, he, this is the scene. And, and as he's in the garden, Judas, the betrayer, comes with this little gang of religious thugs, really. Uh, the religious leaders. And they come to arrest Jesus and to take him captive. And he's taken to this Jewish kind of court, the, this council. And he's brought there, and this is how he's treated. And this is right out of the text of Mark uh, 14 and 15. They spit on him, just to degrade him. 
They cover his head with a cloth and just start beating him. Just think of, just put yourself in the shoes of our Lord just for a moment and what's going on. They, they're mocking him, the text says. They, they slap him. They strike him, punch him repeatedly. This is the description. And that's just the warm-up. Then they take him to the more official, the Roman court. They take him to Pilate. And he's tried there in a mock kind of trial. And, and the soldiers scourge them. Scourge him, the text says. Now, we, it just says that. And it assumes that we know what that means. But most of us are probably not familiar with scourgings, thankfully. Um, the Jews had a law that you could only be scourged or flogged 39 times. If 40 was just too much, it was too violent. But the, the Romans didn't have that kind of law. It was basically left up to the whim of the soldiers and the strength, how long they could hold out, and they would just keep beating the, the victim, the criminal, the prisoner. And so the victim was strapped or tied to a post and stripped, and the, and there, the whip that was used to scourge him was made of these strips of leather, leather, and embedded in the leather were pieces of bone and lead, and it was intended to just grab the flesh and rip it, just tear away the flesh from the bones. And it was not uncommon for, for prisoners to die from the scourging before they ever make it to crucifixion. So he scourged. They, then they dress him up like a king, Put robes on him, put a crown of thorns on him, and they, they just, they're just mocking him. They strike him in the head with the reed, they spit on him also, they mock him, they feign allegiance, they bow to this king of the Jews. And so, we get to verse 21, and this is where we're going to really begin looking tonight, Mark 15. And when it says that Jesus didn't have the strength to carry that heavy wooden beam to up the hill to his death, we understand why. He's already lost a lot of blood. He's had, he's sleep deprived. He's, he's been, he's not eaten anything. There's so much pain. So little strength left in, in Christ. And so verse 21, there's a, there's this, there's this pilgrim who's made his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover from, from North Africa, from modern, modern day Libya. And he's there and he, the soldiers command him to carry Jesus' cross, the beam, up the hill. And so we get to verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them. Now, if you blinked there, or if you just checked out for a second, got a text or something, you just missed the crucifixion. I mean, I mean, it's just, it just says it. It doesn't give us any of the gory details. He, they crucified him. Let me, now, part of this is because Mark's first readers, they knew exactly what it meant to be crucified. I mean, this happened thousands of times each year. They knew the agony. They knew the physical uh, anguish of crucifixion. It was just, it was, they'd seen it over and over and over again. It was commonplace. But, but it's also, it's, and what we'll see is the biblical narrative, it in, intentionally kind of mutes the, the, the physical agony, because that's not the point of the cross, and we'll get there. But, but just, I just want you to understand what's going on when it says they crucified him. There were spikes, and you know most of this, the spikes driven, not through the hands, that wouldn't support the, the bone structure of the hand, can't support the weight of the human body, but they would, they would drive spikes through each wrist, 
And they would have one long nail that would be driven through both ankles, oftentimes through the Achilles tendons. Now, that, that, that's not going to kill anybody, but it's going to cause bone-racking pain throughout the body. And so it, 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 this, this, and then after the victim is nailed to, to the beam and, and, and then the, the cross post is attached or the cross member is attached to the vertical post on the ground, they would raise that cross up and there was a, there was a hole, a deep hole that was dug on the hill, a post hole, and they would drop that cross down into that hole and it would hit with a thud. And in an instant, the full weight of the victim's body was borne on the nails that were driven through the hands and the feet. And the pain just shot through the body. And the joints are just forced out of their natural position. To, so you just can't even, can't even describe the kind of intense agony the, the, the victim would be in at this point. And so the Romans, they were experts at maximizing pain. This was their specialty. They, they wanted to prolong the horror of it. They didn't want the, the, the victim to die. They wanted them to live. And they would often live two or three days on the cross. And so they would prolong the agony. Death was too easy. So you would have nausea and you would have fever and intense thirst and constant cramps and muscle atrophy and throbbing pain and sleeplessness and hunger and and infection and dehydration just for hours on end. This is crucifixion. They, they, they would ultimately die of suffocation. That they were just too weak to push up with their legs and their muscles were atrophied, so they couldn't push themselves up to open up the diaphragm so they could breathe any longer, and they would just, just die of lack of oxygen. Now. You, you, you take that and you add to this the fact that Jesus, like all other crucified victims, or criminals even, our Savior is hanging on the cross completely naked. It's just utter humiliation. Not like the images, there's not a well-placed, strategically placed loincloth. He's exposed, he's in agony. That's it. Verse 24, and they crucified him and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is what we sing about. This is what we boast about. This is what brings tears of joy and gratitude to our eyes a day like today. Now, I, I know some of you here have many questions. Some of you are skeptical, skeptical about the Bible in general, which means you're skeptical about what we just read. 
And, and I can't answer all of your questions in the next 15, 20 minutes. Uh, I, I can't, I'm not going to even try to defend this narrative for you if, if, that is, if that is where you're at. What I'm going to do is just to let the text answer one question for us tonight. And, and the question is this, and it's, it's a very important question. It's this, is what is it about Jesus' death that makes it so unique? Thousands of people crucified. What, what is it about his death? What is it about his death that changes everything? That 2,000 years later we're making so much of it. That's the question that I want you to consider tonight. And we're gonna, the answer will come in four parts. Let me just give it to you and you can write it down. Just listen. Um, the first thing is because of what his death fulfilled. Matt already alluded to this earlier. We read Isaiah 53, so we'll just hit that briefly. Secondly, because of what his death accomplished. We're going to linger on that just for a few extra minutes. And then thirdly, because of what his death um, opened. And finally, just because of who he is. So that's, that's what we'll see in Mark 15. So the first thing, because of what his death fulfilled, it is, his death is unique. And it changes everything. What's happening in Mark 15 is not by chance. It's not just a series of unfortunate events. Now, this is all God's purpose, God's decree. He's, he's ordained this. God told us through prophets that the Messiah, that the Savior will be, will be delivered up and killed just like he is right here. Just like it's happening. Everything in this text is just oozing the Old Testament. Things that were written hundreds, even a thousand years earlier. And so you have like Isaiah 53, some 700 years before this. It just you, you, We read that and you think that's it's describing exactly what is taking place. It is. It's, it's, it was foretold. And you have it throughout here. You have, they offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. That's what Psalm 69, 21 foretold. That's exactly what this text said. It's, uh, verse 24, they divided Jesus' garments among them by casting lots. And that's from Psalm 22, 18. It's exactly what it said. And Psalm 22 was on the mind of Jesus. That's when we get to what he'll say in just a moment in verse 34. This uh, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, 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 but, but what I want you to see is, it's not that Jesus is just reciting Psalm 22, 1, even there. He's fulfilling it. This is fulfillment. It's for Psalm 22, verse 17, they stare and they gloat over me. And we see this. Verse 27, Jesus is crucified between two robbers. That's what we read in Isaiah 53, 12. And so, lots of people died on crosses. But no other death fulfilled what Jesus' death fulfilled. And so that's, that's the only point I want to make. Is, is the cross cannot be explained simply in human terms. Not just, uh, it's not sociologically explained. It's not just historically explained. It's not just um, legally explained. No, it has to be explained according to Scripture. And, and what we see is, yes, men put Jesus to death, but... All of it, everything that happens is in fulfillment to what God had promised and prophesied. And so you see things like Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. To, 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 it was he who put him to grief. And you get into the New Testament in Acts chapter 2.23. Peter's preaching on the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan 
and for knowledge of God. He goes on to say, yes, you crucified, you killed him. He was killed at the hands of lawless men, but this was God's plan. His death fulfilled something, and his death alone. So it's unique in that way. Second way, Jesus' death is unique, entirely unique. It's because of what his death accomplished. What his death accomplished. And look at verse 33 with me. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come... There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for the first three hours, he was crucified on the third hour. And so this has been about nine in the morning, according to how they would would count time. And so at the sixth hour, when the sun is at its highest, darkness fell. First three hours are chaotic. There's mocking, there's taunting, there's... There's all kinds of activities, all kinds of speaking. And if you re- we read through the gospel accounts, blasphemies hurled. Everything's going on. And after a while, probably people wandered away, went back to their homes. The excitement's kind of over. I mean, they've seen this. Now they're just waiting for these people to die. It's, it's kind of done. It's like watching paint dry to them because they see this all the time. So people wander back to their home. But at the sixth hour, something happens. It's just darkness. In the middle of the day, sun is brightest, darkness falls on the land. Now, this is not a dust storm. It's not an eclipse. There are no three-hour eclipses. This is just God turning the lights out. He can do that, you understand? He's God, and so he has that ability, especially at the most significant moment in history. He just turns the lights out. And what in the world... And and this thick, suffocating darkness, it lasts for three hours. Now, we don't even know dark darkness, do we? I mean, we got so much ambient light where we live now. But this was dark. And what in the world is going on here in this darkness? Well, the, the next verse helps us here. It gives some explanation. Now, verse 34, this is arguably the most solemn verse in the whole Bible. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what is going on there? Is Jesus being a little bit melodramatic here? Why would he say this? It's because of what he's experienced over the last three hours, culminating in that moment. To to understand the darkness, to understand Jesus' loud cry, we we have to go back. We need to go back to the Garden of Gethsemane for a few seconds. This was the night before. Jesus went there and he prayed repeatedly over and over, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the text says Jesus' soul was very sorrowful even to death. But why? Well, whatever the contents of that cup were, that it caused Jesus' holy soul to just recoil. And he's saying, no, Father, not, not the cup. Is there any other way? But he resolves, but yet not as I will, but as you will, Father. And so Mark 15, verse 33 and 34, this is the cup. 
This is what Jesus saw, what he anticipated, what he knew was coming. The cup was not the physical agony of crucifixion. Many criminals had sipped on that cup before. No, the cup was what took place during those three hours of darkness. The cup was the cup of wrath. Darkness always in Scripture is is what symbolizes God's wrath and judgment. Hell is described as black darkness. All the prophets over and over, it's the darkness of judgment. The cup that Jesus would drink and did drink was the wrath of God. For those three hours, God's fierce and furious anger for our sin. Not His. He was sinless. He was perfect. But for our sin was poured out upon Jesus. He was being crushed and pierced and punished, as Isaiah 53 says. Not for any wrong He'd done, but for our sin. He was experiencing in those three hours the eternal hell that we deserved. And he experienced it in concentrated form. In a way that no sinner ever, ever would experience. So this is what makes Jesus' death so unique. What he accomplished in it. His death satisfied God's wrath for our sin. He was punished and forsaken in our place. And this is what, and you look in the New Testament, whenever the cross is talked about, this is what's emphasized. Romans 4.25, He was delivered for our offenses. 1 Corinthians 15.3, He died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18, He died the just for the unjust. For 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Died in our place. 1 John 4.10, God sent His Son to be the atonement, the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 3.13, He was made to be a curse for us. Substitution. This is the absolute lowest point of Jesus' condescension, of His coming to earth. Yet what we really find is it's the pinnacle. The pinnacle of, of His saving work, of what He came to do. He stood in our place and absorbed into his own body and soul the judgment of God for our sin as our substitute. That's the most important event in the history of the world up to that point. And yet, those that are watching, they they completely missed it. Verse 35 and 36, these, these bystanders who lingered through the darkness, they probably couldn't even make their way home. They They... They they misunderstood him and they mocked him. Look at verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Their Aramaic was not good or Jesus was so weak, even in his loud voice, he was not understandable. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now Mark doesn't tell us what words he uttered when he said this loud cry, but this wasn't some kind of incoherent shriek. This isn't like the Howard Dean kind of scream of a few years ago. 
has had content. And we have to go to the Gospel of John to know what he said. But John tells us that what he said with this loud cry is, It is finished. It's finished. And then he died. Not, I am finished. It is finished. What is the it that's finished? The work that he came to do, the atonement for sin that was required. Taking into himself the judgment of God, it's, it's done. He drank the cup all the way to the dregs. It's finished. Mission accomplished. And, and so, there's no other death that could accomplish what Jesus' death accomplished. It's not possible. This is the only way that our sin problem could be dealt with. It's the only way. But once our sin was atoned for, this is the great news, is the, the way to God was opened up for us. And that's the next thing, the third thing, and we'll take these last two real quick. Third thing that we see that makes Jesus' death so unique is what it opened for us. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now you think, what in the, I don't understand the language, what is the, the picture there? Well, so don't picture some thin, flimsy, fragile little curtain from Ikea or something like that. Nothing against Ikea. Um, that's not it at all. This is like a wall. This is 60 feet high, 40 feet wide. It's about the dimensions of from the first row of chairs to the back wall, that whole area. That's the curtain. Four inches thick. This is a massive curtain. And the curtain separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the most inner part of the temple where God's own glory dwells. And so it's there and the veil stood as a constant reminder of this one truth. That was its purpose. You can't go in. You're separated from God. Access denied. It's not happening. You cannot get to God because He's so holy and because you're so sinful. And so what this represents then with this miraculous event, what it communicates is access is open. It's granted. Come in. You, you have a way to God now. Nothing stands between you and God anymore. And, and notice the text is very specific. In each of the gospel accounts, they draw attention to this. The veil was torn from the top to the bottom. What is that saying? God tore it. God tore the veil. It was a divine act of vandalism on the temple. And so this this veil representing everything that separated God from man because of our sin. But, but, But after Jesus' death for sin, after He took all of the punishment for our sin on Himself... After he bore God's wrath against our sin, after it was finished, after the cup was drank, God says, I want to show you in dramatic form what the death of my son has provided for you. Rip. It's open. It's open. So John fourteen six says that Jesus is the way to God, the only way to the Father. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we, we see that 
because of Christ, this way to God has been opened up for us. And we can draw near to him through Christ. And so, so what Jesus accomplished and what nobody else accomplished was that we have now a way to God only through Christ. Final thing that makes Jesus' death so unique is just simply because of who he is. Who he is. And we find this in verse 39. And when the centurion, this, this Roman soldier who stood facing him, facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, he made this declaration, truly this man was the son of God. Now you imagine being one of the soldiers in this scene, watching what's going on and listening. And I mean, just the, all of the senses engaged. Just try to put yourself in, in, in the, the shoes of these soldiers. And, and, and they've seen a lot of people dying on crosses before. It's, they've done this many times, but they have never watched or heard anything like this. Their victims are usually cursing and swearing and threatening and blaspheming and spitting and taunting and it was not uncommon for the soldiers to just when they had enough of hearing it they would just crawl up there and cut their tongues off and yet here is jesus he's saying things like father forgive them for they know not what they do so it's radically different but but mark says that the soldier makes this declaration of jesus and it's when he sees how jesus breathed his last he saw and felt the eerie supernatural darkness that fell on the land. He, and he saw the sun come back out in an instant, the moment Jesus died, and it came back shining brightly and hot again. He saw this, and so he declares, truly, this man is the Son of God. This bloodied, beaten, bloated, pitiful specimen of a human being. Is the Son of God. There's no other death like Jesus because there is no other Son of God. He alone is God's Son, which means He's God. God Himself in flesh coming, dying in our place. No other death would satisfy. So that's that's the answer. What is, what is it that we make such a big deal about this death? death of Jesus of 2,000 years later we're gathering on a Friday night doing this that's this there's no other death like it because of what it fulfilled because of what it accomplished because of what it opened up to us because of who he is and what does that mean for you tonight and for me tonight well I'm going to just give you three things real quick first thing that Jesus death does for us is it shows us how bad we really are we're bad, folks. I am. We, it shows us the sinfulness of our sin. I know that sin is a churchy word. And, but it's, it's a, the, how wicked, evil, I don't care what you put in there, just bad. It's our sin that did this to him. It's your sin. It's my sin. It's that, that lustful gaze, man. It's, it's that gossip, that word of gossip, ladies. It's, it's that lie, students, young people. It's that angry thought. It's that sinful habit. It's the love of money. It's that arrogant pride. It's, it's that jealousy. It's our sin. 
it's, 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 if this is what was required to deal with the problem of my sin, then my sin is much worse than I really think it is. God is much more holy and I am much more wicked than I realized. He couldn't just let bygones be bygones. Say, ah, forget about it. Come on in. Draw near to me. No. Blood had to be shed. And it wasn't the blood of Roman soldiers. It wasn't the blood of the religious leaders. It, the, the blood of all the lambs and bulls in the world wouldn't be enough. It required the blood of his own son. It was all that was sufficient to cover our sin. We're more, we're far worse off than we realize. Second thing that shows us is that God's love is far greater than we realize. Shows us how great God's love is that maybe you're here tonight. Okay, you get the sinfulness of your sin. You don't think that you're that well off. You, 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 you have guilt. You have shame. You don't possibly, you can't possibly conceive of how God could love you. I would just say to you, what more does he have to do to show you the depth of his love for you? What else could he do to prove it to you? Look at what he's, he willingly endured to make you his own. To wash away your sin. To offer you forgiveness. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In verse 10, This is love. Not that we love God. That's not the standard of how well we do in pleasing and loving and serving God. That's not the standard. This is love. But that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big fancy word. That's describing what happened in verse 33 and 34. The the darkness, the forsakenness of God. This is the the greatest demonstration of love. You need nothing else. I know, I I know it doesn't feel like it all the time, but you can stake your life on the fact that God loves you. And He showed it. The last thing that I want you to see is that Jesus' death, it forces us to decide. It forces us to decide. Will you believe and will you love Jesus or will you just dismiss him and reject him? I mean, I know there may be different groups here. There may be people who just cherish and love Christ. There are people who have a casual appreciation for what, for Jesus' death and resurrection, but they don't really, doesn't really change, hasn't changed their life. There are, some of you may be skeptics. Some of you may be antagonistic. These things. Some of you may just be ignorant. This is the first time you've heard this stuff. And I, but, but in reality, there's two groups. There's those that, now that you've heard, you embrace it or you, you reject it. And, and, and each choice has eternal consequences. John chapter 3 and verse, well, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. Uh, Everybody knows this. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it goes on in that chapter. And in verse 36 he says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But listen, but whoever does not obey or does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
all sin will be punished. There are those who believe in Jesus and then all of that wrath that Christ absorbed into himself on the cross, then, then we get to stand clean, justified, righteous in God's eyes because of the, because the wrath, Jesus took the wrath for us if we believe in Jesus. If you do not believe in the Son, then the wrath still remains on you. You're still under. You'll still pay for, the, for eternity. And so, I don't mean believe in Jesus like you believe in some Abraham Lincoln or JFK or MLK. Just believe that they live, that believe that Jesus was a historical figure, that he did good and then he died an untimely death. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying true belief, true faith is to believe Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he said he did. Jesus didn't say he was one of many ways to God. He said he was the only way to God. He didn't say that he was a good moral moral example to follow and just try to live like he taught you to live and model. No, he said he's the son of God. He didn't say live a good he didn't just live a good life and die an unfortunate death. No, he he was a willing sacrifice for our sins. John 10:18 says no one takes 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 it from me, takes my life, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He, he, he did this willingly. So, so you, have to, you have to decide. And we're not going to do anything tonight to embarrass you or single you out or pressure you or anything. But I, I appeal to you if, if you're here tonight and you're maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're antagonistic, maybe you're just you're, you, you complete ignorance. I just didn't know. I've never heard this before. Maybe I've grown up in church and I've, I've been around this. I'm in the South, so I assume, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But it's much more than you ever realized. Come talk to us. We've got, we'll have people up here and men and women and find someone, whoever you came with, and ask. And we'd love to, to help you. Not because we have every answer on the tip of my tongue, uh, on the tip of our tongues. I mean, I shaved my beard, so I don't have all the answers anymore. So, I mean, I did a, two weeks ago, but they're gone now. But, but, but we, we have this book, and we want to help you. We want to, to explain, and we want to listen to you. We care for you. We love you. And, and, and we, wanna, we, we want to, to, to be available to you. So I urge you, after we're done, to come and talk with me. Talk with anybody here, um, and we'd love to, to speak with you. But you know, Jesus' death is not the end of the story. Praise God. I mean, we're just, we're just we're just getting started. We're gonna get to chapter 16 on Sunday. We're gonna continue the story, and this that's really the climax. Um, tonight we remember that Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. We're gonna see on Sunday, and we'll rejoice in the fact that he took it up again, and he rose on the third day, and he lives. That's necessary for us to understand and believe. And so let me pray for us, and we'll we're gonna continue to sing in just a moment, but. Um, Again, let's, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the death of your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending your son into this world to do what we could never do on our own, to do what nobody else could do, but that the only son of God came and stood in our place and accomplished for us um, the, the atonement for sin that we needed. And I pray, Father, that for all of us here, God, we would rejoice and delight in this. And this would flavor the rest of our weekend as we prepare and anticipate the celebration of resurrection on Sunday. 
And and for those that maybe this is new or this is they, they're they're not sure. This sounds kind of weird. I pray God that you would work in their hearts to open their eyes to see the truthfulness of your word, and that they would believe Jesus truly as the Son of God, and believing they would have life in His name. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.